Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today, WBGO's Bob Henley gets us up to date on New Jersey and New York's response to the monkeypox virus. City officials initially reported 1,300 confirmed cases and no deaths, but said that potentially there were as many as 150,000 New Yorkers that had been exposed to the virus. There's a new campaign for rooftop solar as both a solution to rising energy costs and the climate crisis. We're going to have a lot more solar on rooftops because that's the cheapest form of electricity that exists today and will in the future. We're going to put electric vehicles in all the driveways. WBGO's Janice Kirkell chats with the co-writer and director of the powerful play Port Chicago 50. We talked to Daryl Meeks, who was the son of uh, Freddie Meeks, the only sailor who was pardoned. And singer Eugenie Jones tells us why her late mom inspired her to become a performer. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. Even as COVID continues to present a risk to healthcare professionals and those working in congregate care settings, they face a new workplace risk from the monkeypox virus. The New York Times described monkeypox as being similar to smallpox, but with symptoms that are less severe. While several thousands of cases have been documented nationally, no deaths so far have been reported. With us now is WBGO's Bob Henley to discuss what essential workers need to know about the latest occupational health risk and what officials are doing to address this quickly emerging health crisis. Thanks for joining us, Bob. So what do we know about monkeypox? Well, it was first seen, Doug, in Africa in the late 1950s, and it's primarily spread through close physical contacts like sex, but can be transmitted by less intimate contact, like through towels or sheets used by someone that's been infected. Initially, the hardest hit population has been gay men, but potential pathways of exposures include locker rooms, any congregate residential facility like a hospital or a prison. The first case in New York City was flagged back on May 20th. According to an internal occupational health guidance from the New York City Fire Department for their EMS services issued back in May, the strain of monkeypox that's hit our region is, quote, not capable of causing permanent disability of life, threatening or fatal disease in healthy humans. But it does manifest in lesions as well as other pretty nasty symptoms. Quoting from that, because it's important to be specific on this, incubation periods after potential contact with an infected person is 5 to 21 days, and a patient is considered infectious from 5 days prior to the onset of a rash until the lesions have crusted over with new skin. Symptoms usually start within 5 days of exposure and can include fever, chills, headache, muscle aches, fatigue, and swollen lymph nodes in the neck, jaw, genital area, and usually start before a rash appears. The distinct rash, which can appear 1 to 3 days after initial symptoms, usually begins on the face and spreads to the palms, soles, extremities, and the trunk of the body. Usually they appear as pus-filled blisters, but not all patients with monkeypox develop that signature rash. So because of the coronavirus pandemic, we're more aware of a public health response. What's been the public health response to monkeypox so far? Well, there's a little bit of deja vu here. Back on July 23rd, the World Health Organization declared a global public health emergency due to the proliferation of monkeypox. Uh, when WHO's panel met a month earlier to evaluate the status of the contagious virus, there were just over 3,000 cases in 47 countries. Here in the United States, there's been several thousand documented cases, and it's spreading pretty rapidly. New York is considered the epicenter of the outbreak, and earlier in the month, Mayor Adams and Governor Hochul declared a public health emergency. City officials initially reported 1,300 confirmed cases and no deaths, 
but said that potentially there were as many as 150,000 New Yorkers that had been exposed to the virus. We also saw President Biden follow suit and declare a national public health emergency. So what has been Governor Phil Murphy's response in New Jersey? Well, Doug, Governor Murphy has not declared an emergency as such, but back on July 28th, Governor Murphy did write the federal government to complain that New Jersey was not getting its fair share of the monkeypox vaccine, which has been in short supply everywhere. Uh, back in August 1st, Scott Gottlieb, a former FDA commissioner, had warned that the United States was repeating some of the same mistakes it had with COVID. He said, quote, our country's response to monkeypox has been plagued by the same shortcomings we had with COVID. He warned that if monkeypox gains a permanent foothold in the United States and becomes an endemic virus that joins circulating repertory of existing pathogens, it'll be one of the world's worst public health failures in modern times. Bob, have there been any occupational-related infections? What can workers do to protect themselves? Well, as for prevention, it's pretty much common sense. It's you have to move laundry or towels and turn over hotel or hospital rooms. Masking gloves and regular washing of your hands is essential. You have to avoid skin contact with the virus. As for exposures, there were two New York City Department of Corrections officers that got infected. In Illinois, a daycare worker came down with it, and there were an unknown number of preschoolers that all had to be screened for monkeypox and were all administered the vaccine, which required all kinds of waivers. When it comes to the response of the unions that represent essential workers who are at risk of contracting this, what are they doing? What I've been hearing from union leaders is that the response from management has been kind of plotting like it was with COVID, Doug. And as we saw with COVID, the government was playing catch up with ramping up sufficient testing capacity and then vaccine availability has been a real problem, which produced long lines and frustration in New York City. The day after the Biden administration declared a national health emergency, Dr. Ashish Jha, the White House points person on COVID, said that the shortfall in vaccines was because there was only one small Danish company that makes all the vaccines for the world and that the U.S. had procured more vaccines than the rest of the world combined. Now, Vincent Barley, the president of the union that represents the FDNY EMS officers, told me he was glad the city had declared the emergency, but said there was a lot of work to be done to help recover from the impact of COVID, which killed a dozen members of EMS. He said that because EMS is so shorthanded right now, there's constant pressure to get a, a rig back into service after a call, even though the city's monkeypox outbreak requires ambulances go through a thorough cleaning. There shows short staff dub that they get pressure from the chiefs who, you know, that they got to turn these rigs around and they're, they can get in trouble if they stay offline too long. But that's what they need to do to make sure it's safe for the, the uh, EMS workers and the public. I would imagine that this additional challenge has probably helped to revive the call for hazard pay for some of these frontline occupations. Well, that's right. Um, and as a matter of fact, in New Jersey, uh, HPAE, the state's largest healthcare union, and 32BJ, which represents essential workers, have continued to press the case for $100 million in hazard pay going back to COVID, which we know killed thousands of workers and left many more with long-term health issues. Dr. Edward Zerowesti, the founding director of the Migrant Clinicians Network, an international nonprofit that serves migrant and immigrant workers, told me that while monkeypox had yet to yield a death in the U.S., it's likely a bellwether of things to come as the climate continues to heat up and tropical infectious diseases migrate. There's no question, he says, that we have to find a way to protect essential workers, which means keeping our eyes out for these new viruses and being nimble on our response. He says that in the current risk climate, 
union representation for essential workers is more vital than ever, and that the best countermeasure to the proliferation of pandemics and public health emergencies is the establishment of universal health care that would promote rapid public health investigations of infectious disease and contact tracing. you got to know what's happening on with the population to stay ahead of the curve. Just yet another thing that essential workers need to be on the lookout for, as well as all of us. Bob Henley, thanks for joining us as always. Thanks, Doug, for caring about essential workers as much as you do. You're listening to the WBGO Journal. Saul Griffith is the founder of Other Lab, a celebrated engineering firm in San Francisco. He's also a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient who's been advising the Biden administration on renewable energy. But lately, he's been spending a lot of his time in his native Australia, campaigning for rooftop solar as both a solution to rising energy costs and the climate crisis. WBGO's John Kalish caught up with the engineer down under. Saul Griffith recently appeared on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation TV show Q Plus A, discussing the country's energy crisis with such policy heavyweights as the Minister of Energy and Climate Change and a former Prime Minister. We're going to have a lot more solar on rooftops because that's the cheapest form of electricity that exists today and will in the future. We're going to put electric vehicles in all the driveways. And we now need to start to think about 10 million Australian households as infrastructure. Many of those 10 million Australian households know the name Saul Griffith. The 48-year-old engineer is passionate about replacing fossil fuels by electrifying all residential energy appliances and transitioning to electric vehicles. I'm in Australia with the belief that climate action can happen here faster than the U.S., So at the end of the day, what I'm trying to do here is run the world's first whole suburb electrification pilot project. Griffith is calling the project Suburb Zero, in other words, electricity with zero fossil fuel emissions. Rooftop solar is a major element in the project. Griffith is currently living with his wife and kids in Wollongong, a coastal town with a quarter million residents south of Sydney. It's one of the areas under consideration as a suburb zero locale, and it's also the town Dave Elkin lives in. In Australia, we're blessed with having a lot of sunshine, so I wanted to take advantage of that. Elkin is a 42-year-old software developer whose home is all electric. He drives a Tesla when he's not biking, and his rooftop solar panels charge the company's Powerwall battery system. When you generate your own energy, you can use far more than you otherwise would. The cost is more stable and understood on a day-by-day basis. You're not subject to swings in prices, which can come out of nowhere. Electric rates in Australia have soared in recent years. That and the trauma of climate crisis-related weather events, including wildfires, are factors in rooftop solar's boom in Australia. 25% of Australian households are equipped with rooftop solar. With government subsidies, the payback time for a residential solar array is less than five years, says Muriel Watt. She's been involved in researching and consulting on solar energy for more than 40 years. Watt says that government and utilities are now grappling with how to integrate all that small-scale solar power into the electrical grid. With so many people in Australia having their own power system on their roof and also going to have their own battery and have their own electric vehicle, they're not interested in having someone 
on high telling them what they can and can't do and when they can and can't do it. The debate about how power from small-scale solar is managed, says Watt, includes controlling the way electric vehicles are charged at home. We're going to have to really think about how those are powered and what the peak load impact is for the network. With minimal bureaucracy for permitting in Australia, rooftop solar there is about a third of the cost of rooftop solar in the U.S. Saul Griffith says getting appliance manufacturers, government and utilities to cooperate with his Suburb Zero project will be much easier because that rooftop electricity is so cheap. Still, Griffith realizes that rewiring Australia is a monumental task. This is an impossible thing that can only happen if you manifest it. And the only way you manifest it is by telling a lot of stories to a lot of people until you get them to agree that the manifest should be real. So it's swing for the fences. Griffith says he hopes to start the first solar suburb in 2023. But in the meantime, he's been traveling around the country doing town halls to drum up support for the Suburb Zero project. Rooftop solar is poised to take off in Europe because of the need to get off Russian gas. Danny Kennedy is a longtime solar entrepreneur based in California. Recent EU directives are remarkable. Their rooftop sector is going to just skyrocket because everything's going to go solar. And not only are rooftops going to be sprouting solar panels in the coming months and years, solar advocates say we'll see them become part of swimming pool covers to reduce water evaporation and generate electricity in the process. For the WBGO Journal, I'm John Kalish. In July of 1944, 320 U.S. sailors, 202 of whom were black, were killed in an explosion at Port Chicago, a munitions naval base near San Francisco. They were loading ammunition onto ships but were untrained, and one of the bombs blew up. Fifty of the survivors refused to go back to work under the same conditions. They were court-martialed and convicted of mutiny. A play called Port Chicago 50 tells their story. WBGO's Janice Kirkell had a chance to speak with the co-writer and director of the play. Dennis Rowe co-wrote the play with David Shackelford and recently directed it at the Soho Playhouse. He joins me now on the WBGO Journal. Dennis, welcome. Why don't you start by telling us how you came to do this? I'm guessing a lot of people are not familiar with this incident. I wasn't familiar with the event, which is why it was done. Um, I happened upon um, the information, actually, by being nosy. Um, I was sitting in a friend's office, she was a secretary, and she used to work with a group out of um, Port Chicago. Um, actually, it, was, it, was, it wasn't it was Port Chicago, it was a little town next to it, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, California, and they used to do dinners for some of the surviving men, and she had a brochure on her desk about that, and again, being nosy, I was like, what is this? She said, well, read it, and I read it, and I was like, why isn't it, why is it that I don't know anything about this? it's, It's an unbelievable story and so from there um 
I got with a friend of mine, David, who's the co-writer, and we just did research on the event. Uh, we talked to uh, Daryl Meeks, who was the son of uh, Freddie Meeks, um, the only sailor who was pardoned. Uh, he was pardoned by President Clinton. And so uh, his son, Daryl Meeks, lived in Southern California. So we got in touch with him. And I talked with him and got information about his dad. Um, and we just decided to do first to do it as a seven-minute skit just to, you know, kind of get our feet wet. And we did it at um, the church we attended. And they were blown away. And like both David and myself, they had the same reaction. What is the story? I, I don't know anything about this story. <clears throat> and so we decided that we would expand on it. And so we did, uh, we rewrote it into a 45-minute uh, uh, one-act show and uh, rented a theater around the corner in North Hollywood. And we did it uh, July 15th, uh, seven years ago. That was our first official performance. Um, the anniversary of the event is July 15th, as, as you know, as um, as you know, the 78th anniversary was this past July 15th. And so, um, sorry, July 17th. Well, I don't know where I got 15th from. July 17th. And so we did it, and um, people were just amazed about the story. And they, a lot of people were not familiar with it as well. And that particular day, we did it as a celebration um, to uh, some of the sailors, and we invited several other descendants. Uh, Daryl Meeks came, and then there was another gentleman. There was actually two other people, two other descendants. One actually had been born on the day of the blast, and he never got a chance to see his dad, who died in the blast. So it was very emotional. Um, everyone really had uh, a connection, an emotional connection to the production and so from there we just kept going when you talk to you know the family members i mean what what kinds of recollections uh do they have it varies um in the show um freddie meets is the narrator so we're seeing the whole story from his point of view through his eyes and he um as daryl his son told us didn't tell his family about it until they were all older. And the way his son actually heard about the story was uh, his father, Freddie, was being interviewed and Daryl walked in on the interview and heard about it. So a lot of the men didn't tell their families until late in life. Why don't you just give us a summation of what, what the incident was, exactly what happened and, and what the results were? Nineteen. 44 uh, in Port Chicago, which was about 30 miles from San Francisco. And it was used to load ammunition onto the ships um, to support World War II. Um, the bombs were, in some cases, uh, you know, weighed a one, one ton, or at least they were very, very heavy. And they primarily used African-American sailors to uh, load those bombs, to prepare those bombs and load them. But they did not train them. And one of the bombs blew up and it killed 320 men, 
of which 202 were black. The surviving sailors, the black surviving sailors, were expected after the bomb the, um, blew up to go back to work under the same conditions without any training. Ultimately, 50 of them um, said, no, we will not go back to work until we're trained. Uh, well, at that time, well, even today, you don't tell the service no, but um, especially in 1944, being a black man. And so um, they were court-martialed, um, tried, and convicted of mutiny. Um, and that's where we get the Port Chicago 50, because it was a 50-man that were um, convicted. And their sentences were upward 15 years. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt and, and um, oh my God, his name just went out of my head. Just went out of my head. The black lawyer at that particular time, real famous black lawyer. Oh my God. I can't um, believe it. I just, I just, this name just. Thurgood Marshall? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and Thurgood Marshall uh, got involved and they were able to get the sentences reduced to around eight years, anywhere from five to eight years. And so that's the story in a nutshell. So when you say 320 were killed, 202 yes. were black, how many total were involved at all? So how many survived? There's no account of how many actually survived. As a matter of fact, some of the 202, the, the, the Navy still hasn't named all of them. Um, although there are names out there, but they haven't named all of them. Um, so there's no official record of the names of the survivors. Mm. Now, interesting enough, there is a bill in Congress to exonerate the entire 50 men. Mm -hmm. And we're waiting to see if that is going to be uh, approved. Mm -hmm. uh, my understanding is recently it's moved and gotten a little bit more movement in Congress. Um, so hopefully it'll come up for votes uh, soon. So part of our mission is not only um, just to tell the story and enlighten people about the story, um, but also um, uh, bring attention to the story so that the movement um, to get the guys exonerated uh, get some more attention. Dennis Rowe, writer and director of Port Chicago 50, recently at the Soho Playhouse. Dennis, thanks for being with us on The Journal. A unique shop in Bloomfield is thriving post-pandemic. WBGO's resident reporter James Frazier has the story. We've seen the innovation of so many industries over the past two decades. Uber is the evolution of taxis. Airbnb is the idea of hotels reimagined. Amazon is the biggest mall in the world. Being an entrepreneur isn't always about delivering a new product to the market. Presenting a unique experience can be equally profitable and exciting. Brooklyn-born business owner Marissa Walter not only celebrates her 50th birthday this year, she's celebrating the grand opening of Casa de Flora with her business partners Ashley Gillette and Gregor Martin. Ironically located in Bloomfield, New Jersey, Casa de Flora is the fusion of a flower shop and a cafe. The real question is, 
How does a woman with 25 years of experience as a mortgage underwriter shift to a life of flowers? I've always had it in me to like plan, host, uh, um, an artist at heart. Um, so when I decided to do wedding florals, it came, it came natural, you know, but I didn't think it would turn into the business that it's turned into today. A Google search led to a seven-week course at Borough of Manhattan Community College. And uh, I started class that following Monday, took the course. It was a seven-week course, finished the course, and then um, within the course, you know, they teach you how to start your business and everything like that. So I signed up, named my business, the Ritz-Walton Wedding Collection, uh, which is um, my name, Ritz. That's what my grandfather called me. And Walton, <laughs> thanks to my husband. After Mrs. Walton finished the wedding planner classes, she immediately invested in a booth at the Meadowlands Bridal Expo. I invested, signed up, got a booth, um, but that wasn't enough for me. I called the, the people who was running the bridal show and I said, hey, I have a booth, but, you know, I'm new in the industry and I need for people to know who I am. What is it that I have to do to be recognized there, not just a, a random booth? And so I offered my services of decorating their entrance to the expo. The aftermath was a giant arch of flowers branded with Marissa's booth number. The bridal expo was a catalyst for the Ritz Walton wedding collection to book their first clients and grow into a six-figure business within two years. But before Casa de Flora was introduced to the world, the entrepreneur had to endure a fire, a pandemic, and a hurricane. You know, we had a lot of... Uh, tribulations tribulation that 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 happened you know not just the fire but then covid and then ida came and wiped out everything that we had did as far as the construction and then we had to start all over again i attended the grand opening of casa de flora where i caught up with ashley gillette she expressed how it feels to open up the flower bar after a long journey you know we were knocked down last year and, the, and then in 2019, my sister was knocked down with this very space by a fire. So just understanding that it, I guess it wasn't time, but now's the right time. So it's a great feeling to see it come to fruition. And the, the, the outpour of love, the um, everyone coming out to show their support, it's just a wonderful feeling. You can visit Casa de Flora Bar Luxury Cafe at 75 Washington Street in Bloomfield, New Jersey. For the WBGO Journal, I am James Frazier in Newark. Eugenie Jones grew up in the church, her father a deacon, her mother a soprano singer in the choir. But it wasn't until years later after her mother's passing that she got the inspiration to sing. Sitting at the bar, minding my own beers, nursing a drink and a bag. Eugenie spoke recently with WBGO's Nicole Sweeney about her dedication to the new chapter in her life, her new album of original compositions telling her story in her own words, and the ambitious route she took to get there. You know, we're at a time in our history where we're, we're having a lot of baby boomers 
in our in our society right now. A lot of baby boomers, and I fall into that category of being a baby boomer. And and a lot of us are finding second, third, and fourth careers at this stage in our life. And then there are some people who are intimidated to try something new because they think, okay, it's too late in life for me to start this. I mean, I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with women who are 30 years younger than me. Um, and, uh, and here I am, you know, how dare you, you know, be on the cover of a CD with your belly button showing. I got into it late in life and, and it wasn't something by design. It was something that I did, um, just kind of stepped into because out of a love and out of a missing of my mother when she passed away. And uh, when she was gone, I felt this void and beyond the grief that you experience when you lose a parent, it was like something was missing and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And then I realized I missed hearing her sing around the house because she lived the last seven years of her life with us. And even as a child, she sang all the time, church, around the house, cooking and cleaning. You always could hear her singing. And uh, that is what sparked the interest in me where I began to ask, I wonder if I can carry on this part of her. And those questions led me to vocal jams and onto a pursuit of music. Hmm. Was there a specific moment where it all came to you and made sense? Was there a particular song, a particular performance you were doing that, that made you say, I, I, I heard the call and, and now I'm receiving it. Moms have a way of, you know, guiding us. She was such a tenacious character, very strong and very um, articulate and very communicative. And um, there's so many things to admire about her. And she, she raised us all to have confidence in ourselves and to pursue the things that we wanted to pursue. And she believed in us. She encouraged us. Um, So even though she didn't live to see me do this, I still feel her presence. You can hear Nicole Sweeney's entire conversation with singer Eugenie Jones at WBGO.org. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 530 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz station, WBGO and WBGO.org.